showed up this morning, seen the Christmas trees at the front, and went, already? Anybody? Yeah? Well, uh, I won't ask the question. I know I'm, I'm a huge fan of Christmas. It's probably like my favorite uh, season of the year. But I know for some other people, they're not huge fans of Christmas. So we won't, we won't segregate the, the congregation by asking for a show of hands on that. However, did you know that this year for Advent, it's the longest possible Advent ever? Did you know that? Because Christmas falls on a Sunday, we end up celebrating Advent four Sunday, the four Sundays before Christmas. So this is, so those of you that love Christmas, this is your year. It's the longest Advent ever, okay? Uh, for those of you who aren't so much into Christmas, well, maybe you'll have enough time to spend some time with Advent that you'll, you'll get familiar with it and you'll begin to love it. Um, if you'll notice up at the front of the stage here, we have uh, an Advent wreath set up. It's a little something different. Uh, a lot of churches do it every year. Um, I understand that we haven't always done it, but we've done it in the past. And we thought, you know what, this year, let's bring back the Advent wreath. So in order to kick that off, I thought it's probably appropriate to do a little bit of a discussion or a talk about what the Advent wreath represents, just so that we all know what's going on. For me, as a side note, this doesn't come from any tradition, um, but I love, I grew up, I, I loved being, having bonfires with my cousins and with my family, and I always feel like a kind of a bond when you share like a bonfire with a certain group of people, don't you? Those of you that love camping, you've got those friends that you love sitting around a campfire with and you share stories. Well, think of an Advent wreath kind of like that, that together as a church, we're going to share a bonfire together. A little less flaming, a little less heat, but, but the same kind of nostalgia, if you will, okay? And so an Advent wreath, the wreath part of it, the circle part of, of the Advent wreath represents God himself, okay? His, his eternal nature, his endless mercy, okay? The greenery, it's decorated with greenery to kind of represent the hope of summer, Okay, that, that, that it's coming, this waiting and this longing for summer. It's supposed to happen in like the dead of winter when there's like three feet of snow and y'all came in minus 20. This year, not so much, right? So we're not feeling that so much. Then there's, there's five candles with uh, a larger center candle. The four outside candles, uh, one will be lit on each Sunday leading up to Christmas Day. And actually, those four candles represent the four centuries of waiting between the Old Testament and the New Testament where it was quiet. There was no word from God, no prophets that rose up to tell the people words from God. It was just simply a season of waiting. And so really, that's kind of the whole theme of an Advent wreath is that we're, we're moving towards an attitude of waiting for God. So each week, a new candle will be lit. Today's, incidentally, is the prophecy candle, or the, the prophecy of a prophet to come, which is John the Baptist. So I believe the youth are still here. Oh, so final thing. So the four candles surround, and then the, the center candle is, of course, the Christ candle, which gets lit on Christmas Eve which represents, obviously, Christ's coming into the world, the light of the world. And uh, if you look, uh, the four candles make a cross, which, again, all point to Christ, okay? So that's what's going to be going on the, the next four Sundays. Do we have, do I have a brave youth that will come up and light one of the candles? Of course, it would be an Atkins child. <laughs> come on up. If there's fire, there's Judah, right? <laughs> so here you go. Have you ever used the lighter before? 
candles. Okay, don't tell me the story. Do you want to light one of the, if you want to light one of the purple candles at the front? Not the whole wreath, please. Sweaty? Well, here, do you need me to help you? Okay, come here. Oh, you got to hold it off the side like that. It's childproof. Okay, maybe, maybe. I appreciate it. Wow, hey, these childproof lighters really worked. Here, I'll light it for you, Judah. Thank you for your help. Okay, youth, you guys can be dismissed. You guys are heading out to a teaching, so the, any of the grades eight, six to eight, you can be dismissed. Here we go, and we'll jump into things here. So if you're interested in celebrating Advent or kind of participating a little bit more in that, uh, Laura Stackrock, Pastor Laura, has gone through extensive work on putting together a bit of a booth at the back that has all kinds of take-home things, uh, handouts, candles, there's some cups there, to help your family with some ideas of kind of walking through Advent. So uh, if that's you, if you've got young ones, I'd encourage you, take a, take a stop by that booth and grab some stuff and uh, get your Advent on. So this, uh, this year's series, uh, we called it Advent, Ready or Not, here he comes. And the idea of it is that sometimes Christmas always catches us by surprise. It seems to sneak up on us, right? Uh, and this year, we want you to be ready for all that God has for you. Uh, we would prefer you to be more on the ready side than the not side. So our messages leading up to Christmas are all about getting our hearts right, getting ready for what the Lord is going to do, because he is coming, whether we're ready or not. Um, I don't know about uh, you guys, but it isn't Christmas to me until I hear that one song on the radio. And as my wife lovingly pointed out during our life group uh, this week, that, that she told this story on me, so I thought, ah, now that my life group knows, I might as well embarrassingly tell the entire church. So it's the song is, Where Are You Christmas by Faith Hill. You know that one that the, the Grinch made, made famous? So it's been happening... Like, since the song came out, I hear that song, and instantly I get like, I'm going to get choked up now. I get choked up in my throat, and my eyes start, and I just start, it's like the cry of my heart where I'm just like, where are you, Christmas? And then it's like, bang, we're into Christmas season as soon as I hear that song. I actually haven't heard it yet, believe it or not, but we'll go on with the message anyways. Um, it was pretty awesome. As we sat around our life group, our life group is fantastic. Uh, we were a new life group that just uh, got kicked off this year. And uh, so there was lots of kind of like awkwardness when you all kind of get together and you know of each other, but you don't really know each other super well. But I feel like this past week, we're really starting to kind of gel and share stories. And, and as I said, my wife embarrassed me. And then I felt like that opened up the table and there were some other embarrassing stories that went around. And, and we like to start off our evenings uh, with asking kind of just a random question. And so this year, my wife had asked about Christmas traditions in which she told that embarrassing story about me about where are you Christmas? But there were some other ones, so I'm going to throw the rest of my life group under the bus and share some of those. I won't say who they are, though, but I thought they were, they were great ideas. Uh, um, one person in our life group, they have a family tradition where Christmas Eve, they actually sleep around the tree, the whole family, on the Christmas tree. I'm like, that's sort of cool. I would have loved to have done that. You can have, like, open a present every hour type thing. It'd be, it'd be fantastic. Another one, and this one I love, this, this one I'm actually, I'm going to do this year with our girls, is another person in a life group said that they, uh, they rip open all their presents and stuff like that, and they enjoy that kind of moment, and then 
They do Christmas, or they do family photos, but they get dressed up in all the ripped up wrapping paper, and they take pictures. I'm like, that's such a great idea. I'm totally gonna, totally gonna do that this year. Maybe some ideas for you guys. Um, but in all seriousness, I don't know about you, but sometimes Christmas is a time where I begin to wrestle the most with doubt in my life. Because uh, there's the hustle and bustle of commercialism, of materialism, of like buying and getting gifts for people and doing the gift exchange. And it's just torturous every year for me to have to go out and buy a gift for someone. And it's, it's lame because like there's a minimal thought. I go like, okay, like for Jen's family, we, uh, we, we draw names and do like kind of secret Santa stuff. It's not a secret at all because we're pretty much all just vying for like, what do you want? What do you think they want? I find out exactly what they want. I go to the store. I buy them that exact thing. I wrap it and I give it to them. And yet it still causes me so much agony. Anyways, for me, I, I begin to experience kind of doubt and being like, what is the purpose of all this? What is the meaning? And uh, every year I kind of go like, hey, you know what? This Christmas, I'm not going to get caught up in all the, all the kind of the hoopla or the rush and miss out. I really want to take the time and wait for God and make it a spiritual experience. Can anybody else relate with that? We almost kind of feel a little bit numb when Christmas hits. You know, it's these stories, these same stories that we've heard over and over and over again. And sometimes we can even get a little bit, a little bit calloused or a little bit, a little bit jaded where we feel like we're totally missing, we're missing out on what God is doing. Or, or maybe, if I'm honest with you, sometimes I experience where I just, I doubt that God is at work. In the midst of the hustle and the bustle, I just, I can't see it. Maybe that's your story this, uh, this Christmas already. You know, we doubt God's existence, we can doubt God's goodness, and we can doubt God's intentions toward us. But aren't you glad that God wants to address our doubts? In fact, that God's word is specifically designed to help put us at ease and to encourage us. And so this morning, we're going to be taking a look at Luke chapter 1, uh, verse 5. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there with me, I would invite you to do so. Now, this is probably a story that you've all heard a lot before. So I want to I wanna encourage you to kind of, hopefully you can kind of settle in and, and hear it with new ears this morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the duration of, of my message to kind of walk through kind of verse by verse this story, and I'll make some comments on it. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to get really comfortable, okay? I want to kick off your shoes, pull your, your feet up on the, on, on the pews, get really comfortable. You know, if you're, you're here with a loved one, you know, snuggle up to them, relax, okay? If you're not here with anybody, snuggle up to someone. It's a great way to meet somebody, okay? And I want you to listen in prayer this morning, throughout the service. And what I mean by that is if there's something that I say that kind of twinges something in your heart, I want you to either write it down or do, do your best to try and remember that or, or see where God might take that to address something, maybe a doubt or something that resides in your heart this morning, okay? Our series is not meant to be something about what you need to do, but rather these series are, are, are more designed for something that you need to just receive from God. So this morning, it's not about you doing, but it's about you receiving. So anyways, here we go. Where am I? I'm almost left off. So 
We're jumping into verse 5 because Luke's introduction to his book is all about telling a guy, Theophilus, that, you know, I've, I've, a lot of people are telling about the gospel. I thought it's a good idea, too. I've researched stuff, too, and I've put together an orderly account, okay? And this is cool because this is a story that kicks off the book of Luke, okay? Luke is intentional with this story. I think it's meant to grip us and wow us. So if you can, get comfortable, and we'll hear it as with new ears. Um... A second, I'm already out of. Here we are. In the time of King Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Okay, stop there. Luke is all about details. He loves to give you the most information-packed perverse. And so some of this we'll walk through. Some of this you might think, ah, it's sort of peripheral. I don't know really what it has to do with the story. But some of it is actually rather quite significant. He makes a point of mentioning Herod. Another name that Herod uh, became known by was kind of this idea of Herod the Builder. He, he had a fascination with architecture and with building things. So actually this magnificent temple that the Jews got to worship in was actually constructed by Herod, and it took him about 10 years to do. He also built theaters. Um, there was like long kind of places of, um, where people dwelled and they wanted to set up military bases. Herod developed ways of getting water out there. He was just a brilliant guy when it came to building. And it's neat because this story, the beginning of Luke, takes place in the temple built by Herod. Uh, Zechariah, of course, is part of a priesthood who serves in the temple. So they're the guys that are making sacrifices, praying, offering incense. This was something that Zechariah was born into. He's only known all of this his entire life. This has been what he was born to. Um, now, while, remember we talked about this waiting thing in four centuries of not hearing God? So while things might have been slow on the whole hearing God department, things were moving right along in the sin department, if you catch my drift. So Israel was still wrestling with sin, and the, the way that God had provided for them to, to, to deal with their sin was through sacrifices at the temple. And let me tell you, business was booming, okay? So Zechariah and the priests had their hands full daily sacrifices, plus honoring all the, the, the festivals and feasts that were coming up throughout the year. The temple, of, uh, the temple was the place of God, and the whole life of the nation of Israel centered on the temple. And so the fact that our story takes place in the temple this morning is significant. It talks about the priestly division of Abijah. I don't know too much about that other than the fact that priests were divided into 23, 24 divisions, and they would serve um, kind of on a rotation basis throughout the year at the temple, okay? Which, um, if you're like me, it leaves you, me wondering, okay, so if they serve twice a year, what do they do in the rest of their time? Right? These priests, like they're, they serve twice, two weeks out of a year, what do they do the rest of the time? It just goes to show you that... Um, that long-standing joke that pastors only work on Sundays, right, has, has some historical basis to it, okay? That, that's what that's telling you. We also find out in these verses that uh, Elizabeth is also of a noble line, that she's born from Aaron. So they, both of these people, have heritage and they have pedigree. Let's move on. In verse 6, we read that 
both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Righteous, blameless. These are good, good people. But there's a problem. And isn't that just like life, right? You can be born into the best family. You can be doing your absolute best to follow all the rules and commandments of God. And yet, somehow, problem surfaces in your life. And for this, this couple, what was their problem? Well, they were without a child. Not only that, but Luke tells us that they're already very old. Gets at the, at the sense that, you know what, it's already past the time when they're able to even have children. Now this was a particularly cruel problem in the first century. Because everything depended, about, depended on family. You know, the kids looked after the parents when they were old. It became a source of support, a source of encouragement. Not only that, but this idea of fruitfulness of land and fruitfulness of womb was seen as a blessing from God. And so if you were able to have children, the Jews believed that, you know, God was smiling on you and blessing you. Which means that if you weren't able to have children, it all of a sudden became like a source of shame where people who couldn't have children, the women particularly, because, you know, back then it was never the man's fault, right? It was always her issue that it was something she did that she, you couldn't have children and it was a, a source of shame. And yet we're told that it's not because of Elizabeth's sin or Zachariah's sin that they don't have children. Must have been a long road to get there, as you can imagine. I don't know, maybe there's some of you here today that have tried having children and have, you know, where conception has been taking a long time. And so you get this in a way that I, that I po couldn't possibly understand it. And I can just imagine for this aging couple, year after year, their hopes of having children, and yet month after month, their dreams are shattered, and they're disappointing, disappointed, and yet they're still longing. And I can't help but wonder, in their waiting, how many times did doubt want to settle in and get a foothold? But all of that is about to change. We read on in verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came and the assembled worshipers were praying outside, stop. So it's Zechariah, he's on rotation, chosen by lot. This would be the priest that would go into, not the Holy of Holies, because that was, you know, remember, that's where God's presence was in the temple. That was reserved only for, for the high priest once a year. There was uh, the holy place, which had uh, the table of the bread, the, the a place for incense, and the lampstand, right? So that priest, on this day, was chosen by Lot, and that Lot fell on Zechariah. It was like a once-in-a-lifetime deal that you got to do it. It wasn't a regular occurrence. So this is something significant for Zechariah. He gets to be close to God's presence. The curtain would be there and the most holy place would be just behind that. Luke goes on to tell us um, 
tons of details here, and we're saying get on with the story. Get on with the story. So we'll go on to verse 11 here. So verse 11, all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Okay, stop. An angel of the Lord appears, people. I don't know about you, I hear this story so many times at Christmas, it's easy to just kind of gloss over that. But an angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah. 400 years of silence and all of a sudden an angel's on the scene. Something about this says that we should sit up and take notice. Luke is wanting to get our attention with this particular detail. This should command our attention. Um, Imagine, if you will, it's like um, you're visiting a friend and uh, they come over for coffee or something like that. And you're chatting and you ask them how their day was. And they're like, oh, it was, it was really good, you know, and they're going on. And all of a sudden you feel like your, your phone vibrate in your pocket. Any, any of you been there? And you know, it's, 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 it's not a call, it's a message. And your mind goes to that, I wonder who that is. And you're trying to listen to their story, but you're not really listening to their story. You're just hoping that they don't notice that your hand's down on your pocket. And they, you're hoping that they don't notice your distraction, that you really want to just check your phone and see who it was messaging you. And then all of a sudden, your friend will drop a line like, yeah, and all of a sudden, this angel showed up and visited me. Now, one of two things are going to happen. You're either going to totally um, think your friend is crazy and disregard them and just check your phone anyways, or you're going to be like, excuse me, what? You've got my attention. An angel showed up and visited you? I want to hear what you want to say. And I'd like to give a shout out. There's a, I think there's a movement happening amongst moms and dads of young children. And I'm so encouraged, Jenna was telling me a little bit about this, where people are actually deleting certain apps on their phones that are super distracting, that they find always cut in or take precedence over time, quality time of giving your kids your full attention. I just want to say, if that's you, if you're, keep up the good fight. Like, that's the good fight. I just want to encourage you to keep going with that. So there we are, uh, carrying on in verse 11. Luke says that it's standing, this angel is standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And we say, right side, thanks Luke. Another detail we're not going to use. Seems random, let's move on. Continuing on, when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. Now, how does this priest of ours respond to this majestic, heavenly appearance? Appropriately, with fear. He's gripped by it. If he's gripped by fear, I'm saying there's something in this story that we should be paying attention to. On the other side, I kind of find this mildly amusing. Zachariah is gripped with fear. He's in the temple praying, and heaven answers and he's gripped with fear. If an angel was going to show up, you'd think he'd show up to a priest, don't you? So I find that mildly amusing. And it seemed to have caught him slightly off guard. And here's what the angel says in verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, do not fear seems like the standard angelic messenger first words out of their mouth, right? 
the, the standard angelic greeting. But God's intentions towards Zechariah and to us are never that of fear and trembling. Reverence, yes, but ne never a, a terrifying fear. And so they say, do not fear. The second thing about this that really sticks out to me is the angel knows his name. He calls him personally and says, your prayers have been answered. This is a curious component of the story that the angel says your prayers have been answered for, for two reasons. Um, first is that Zechariah is operating in a role of a priest here. And he's offering incense and prayers for the people of God on their behalf. And yet an angel shows up and says, your prayers have been answered. God's going to give you a son. I think that's really interesting. What prayer was he praying at that altar. It seems as though maybe there was a second prayer where he's again petitioning God for a son. And you can imagine, if this is a once-in-a-lifetime thing for Zechariah, he finally gets chosen by Lot, and he's in that place. This is as close to the presence of God as he can ever get in his earthly role, and he offers prayers for the Israelites, but you can almost imagine that the prayer that is closest to his heart can't help but surface as he petitions heaven to answer his cry for a son. If you were in that place, what would be the prayer that you would tack on? If you were that close to God's presence, this is the place where, uh, for him, where this is as good as it's going to get, the closest to God's presence. If that was you, I ask you, what would be the one prayer? If you only had one prayer to be heard, what would that prayer be for you? And at first glance at these verses, it seems that the angel answers Zacharias' second prayer, the one about a son. And yet later we go on to read um, the angel's talking about his son here now. He's saying, He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even, from, even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the angel shares about what the calling of this son would be. Now it seems that the angel's message answers both Zechariah's personal prayer and his petitions for the nation of Israel with the same prayer, the sending of a son. I don't know about you, but I can't help in this story but see this beautiful blending of stories. How God has this overarching story that he's wanting to tell and he's beautifully blending the prayers and the desires of this older couple in with his story. And I'd like to encourage you this morning that God's intentions have not changed uh, from that couple towards us, that it's the same thing that he's longing to, doing, longing to do with us, to blend your story and my story in with the story that he is telling. That we actually find our, ourselves a part of God's story.
But their son is to be the first prophet, one in the spirit of Elijah, who was an important prophet in Israel's history. The first prophet in a long, long time. And his role would be simply to go before and prepare a people ready for the Lord. Now, in my mind, I think this is all well and good, but this is just theory still. This is just the word of an angel promised to Zechariah. Um, so we get to Zechariah's response, and this is where our story takes a little bit of a turn. Verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. At first glance, it seems like a simple question, right? It actually seems like a question I would want to ask. It seems harmless, right? I mean, given the, given the reality of the situation, that he's just been promised a son, but he knows he's well beyond the years, and he diplomatically says also that his wife is, 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 is too old, that she's well along in years. But, but on the other hand, Zachariah's comment has at the heart of it doubt. It's a doubt that says, prove it to me. It's a doubt that says, talk is cheap, where's the evidence? It's shocking, really. If you step back from this story at this point, and look at the facts, it actually seems like a very arrogant question that Zechariah poses to that angel. Um, I like that when I read Bible stories, I love getting in, like really into them. So I actually sometimes pretend that I'm, I'm like in this story, interacting with the characters. It's just sometimes the way my imagination goes. And so if I could time travel back to this place, I would love to freeze frame everything that's going on, and step into right after Zechariah said this stuff and show up on the scene in the temple. Okay, just me and Zechariah and this, this frozen framed angel, okay? And I would say something along the lines of, um, hello, Mr. Zechariah, um, I'm sorry to barge in here unannounced. Uh, and you know, he probably really wouldn't mind because, hey, an angel just showed up, and I think I'm way less threatening than an angel, Okay. But uh, did you know that uh, this here angel right here is an angel of the Most High God? And Zachariah would say something like, why, yes, uh, I was quite taken by that just a minute ago. Um, and I was actually quite gripped with fear with it. And I would say, and, and Mr. Zachariah, do, do you realize that you actually are a priest of the Most High God? That you represent the Most High God to your people. And he nods his head, but he's not quite too sure where I'm going with this because, hey, his English is probably a little bit rusty, right? We'll give him that. And, and I would say to Mr. Zachariah, I'd say, and do you realize that you are standing in the temple of the Most High God and that you have just offered incense and prayers to the Most High God with only a curtain separating you from the very presence of that most high God. 
And no sooner are your prayers out of your mouth that all of a sudden an angelic messenger who's gripped you with fear shows up and responds to the prayers you've just prayed. And he's looking at me wide-eyed now. And so, in light of all of this, Mr. Zachariah, what, what part of you thought it was okay or would be a good idea to ask this angel to prove it? Like, you couldn't have led with maybe that line about that you're an old man. Like, maybe start there. Like, well, I'm, you know, I'm kind of old and my wife's long, well along in years as well. And then just trail off and hope that the angel gives you more feedback. But no, Zachariah goes for the gusto and simply says, prove it. I mean, anything better, Mr. Zachariah, would have been better than prove it. And I imagine him looking at me and kind of hanging his head and said, well, when you put it that way, right? But I can't be too hard on this priest because I recognize I do the exact same thing quite often. That I missed, I missed the forest for the trees. Is that how it goes? Where I'm so focused on what's right in front of me that I miss the larger picture of what God is doing. And if I'm honest, doubt fills my heart. We'll read on. Verse 19, the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you the good news. Essentially, I feel like the, Gabriel is sort of saying, don't you know who I am? Hello, I'm Gabriel. And it almost sounds like a little bit, I almost hear like a little bit of um, um, annoyance in his voice that he's like, my job is to stand in the presence of God. And God has sent me here to this temple to visit you, to give you the good news, and you ask me to prove it? You give me some lip? That's kind of how I picture it. And yet there's consequences, very severe consequences to Zachariah's doubt. Here we go. Verse 20. This is what the angel says to him. He says, And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Silence is the proof the angel gives to Zechariah. Zechariah will be unable to speak, and, and from a later text in this chapter, we get the impression that he, was, he, he couldn't speak and he also couldn't hear because people were having to make signs to him. Almost as if uh, Luke knew that we would wonder about the intentions of Zechariah's word, the angel clarifies it, that it is in fact because of his unbelief, because of his doubt. And yet there's great hope in this story, you guys, because Zechariah's doubt is not enough to cancel the plans of God. God does not change his intentions, his promises, or his plans of what he, how he wants to use Zechariah. His doubt isn't enough to thwart the plan of God. Good news. Great news. The plan that God is unfolding is too important to put off any longer. The wait is over and things are in motion for this child to be the one to prepare God's people for the coming Messiah. Hallelujah. 
And so we go on the story now as we're wrapping up, getting close to wrapping up. Uh, Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. So it's interesting here that beginning first with Zechariah's consequences, it's just as the angel said that it was going to be. And while this would have been difficult for Zechariah to endure, this, um, this speaking and hearing loss, it would have also been a proof to him that God's messenger means what he says and that what he says happens or takes place. We read on um, verse 23. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant for five months and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from the people. So how Zechariah's rebuke came true. Zechariah goes home, meets with his wife, and they conceive a child. And so the next part of that promise is fulfilled. And I love how Luke trails off here and he goes on to tell a bit of a different story and you're left with, what else was it that the angel said that would also come true? And it's a little bit about who this John was going to be. That this John was going to be to be a prophet and one who would call people towards repentance so that their hearts would be prepared for the real deal. For the whole reason we celebrate Christian, which is the birth of Jesus Christ, our Messiah. I'll make a few comments about, about doubt. I felt really strongly during my preparation this week that God really wanted to address doubt, not only in my heart, but maybe, maybe that in yours as well. Doubt is no respecter of circumstantial evidence or age. For Zachariah, you can, you can be from the right background, in the right role, in serving the right people, in the right place, saying the right prayers, and yet you are not immune to experiencing doubt. Doubt is no respecter of circumstantial evidence. It's also no respecter of age. That even Zechariah in his old age, after seeing many, many years of the, of the faithfulness of God to his people, he experienced doubt in this area, the one area where he felt he wasn't experiencing the blessing of God. You can experience doubt even when everything around you is affirming the truth. I think about how appropriate that is for Christmas, that sometimes in the hustle and bustle of it all, as Christians, we know that Christmas is all about celebrating Christ's birth, and yet in the midst of that, somehow we experience our own levels of doubt, uneasiness or or unassurance of what God is actually up to. We think maybe we've been overlooked, or we doubt that he's actually interested in weaving our story in with his. Doubt comes from within us. 
and will show up in the way that we live and the choices that we make. Doubts don't remain hidden for very long. Just like Zachariah, he's doing all the right things, but eventually came the day when he was put to the test. His prayer has been answered in light of an angelic messenger, and yet there was still doubt in his heart, and he needed to see proof that that was actually going to happen. Doubt keeps us from entering into joy, the joy of what God is doing. If doubt is going to hold you back, it's going to hold you back in the areas of joys and being excited about God's promise. That rather than upon getting the promise from the angel, Zechariah could have responded with an exuberant joy and stepped fully into the promises of God, knowing that the one who promises is faithful to bring about that which he has promised. And yet doubt was there. And I want to encourage you today that during this season, if you're identifying doubt in your life, don't let it linger there. Address it. Deal with it because doubt only wants to steal your joy. It wants to keep you from participating in the promises of God this season. And finally, a final word on, on, on doubt is that God is interested in dealing with doubt. For me, I can't help but think that I'm really glad I live this side of Pentecost, this side of the cross, and that in dealing and wrestling with my own doubt that I have the Spirit of God that gently works on me and encourages me to bring my doubt before him and to surrender it. I think that's a way better alternative than having an angel show up, you know, in my bedroom and address me. I think that's way better. I don't think I could have handled what Mr. Zachariah had to go through. It's important for God that we believe correctly about who he is and what he's doing. I find that God keeps bringing me back to places where I have to face my doubt head on. You know, I can have doubts about something, and then a while I try and live and kind of just avoid them, but then all of a sudden I'm brought right back face to face with that same doubt. Uh... On a personal, when I was a, I'm going to just, excuse me for a second. When I was uh, in junior high and attending a camp, I remember feeling a sense of call to vocational ministry. And I was excited about it. At that time, it was great. I had a youth pastor who was in my life who was there to kind of encourage me and continue to speak into that. But all along, there was always this, this doubt that I didn't think God was actually going to be able to use me. I thought that there'd be some sin or some brokenness about me that would just made me exempt from being able to be used by God. And I felt that from junior high. And as I've shared with before, this is my first time being in vocational ministry this past year. And I'm 35. So there was 20 years in there of me having a sense and an assurance about this call on my life. And yet, every time an opportunity came up for me to step out into what I felt like God was calling me, there was also this doubt that lingered there that said, I, I don't know, I don't think I can do it. And so I'd go off and do something else. And good things, I did lots of schooling, lots of training, lots of seminars, always saying, oh, I, I, you know, I'll, I'll definitely step into this when the, time, when the time is right and I feel like I'm more prepared. And not only, I mean, 
God is, God is sovereign over all, over all things, right? So I, I believe I'm, I end up in ministry as, as according to God's design. And yet I look back and I say, you know what? It's not 20 years of ministry life that, that, God, that, that my doubts stole from me. It's not that. If I look back, what was stolen from me was my joy about the promises of God in my life. That my own doubt choked off that promise and kept me from, rather than being excited about what God was wanting to do, knowing full well that he is able to do what he says he's going to do, I choked it off with my own doubt. And so if I can encourage you this morning, I'd ask you, take inventory of your heart this morning. Where is it that maybe doubt resides, that you feel it's gone unchecked and that it's choking off your enjoyment of the promises of God? At this time, I'd just like to invite the worship team to come forward.